Money. Yep, it's on our minds. Sometimes it's on our minds a bit too much. That's why we brought in Rabbi Binyamin Babad, who spearheads Relief, an fantastic organization, which you'll hear more about them. But money and mental health are very, very closely linked together, right? Poor mental health can make earning a living extremely difficult, and we wanted to get into that. So, without further ado, another episode brought to you by Living L'Chaim, sponsored. This episode is sponsored by FAO Printing. You'll hear more about them in the middle of this episode. But without further ado, Rabbi Benjamin Babad. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Okay, another episode of Kosher Money. We're going through these like water. And today, super excited about this particular topic, uh, mental health. I think we've come a long way in uh, over the years uh, about the stigma. Still ways to go. Uh, Rabbi Babad, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about Relief. Um, I know you've been a big part of that for quite a few years. Um, for those that don't know, what is Relief? Okay. So Relief is a mental health referral service. Um, probably the easiest way to describe it, most people know about ECHO or Shuki Berman in terms of what they do for medical referrals. We do the same thing for mental health. Um, when somebody's looking for a mental health professional, it's actually very, very difficult to find on your own, maybe even impossible to find on your own the right person because A, very often people don't speak about what their issues are. So if somebody's looking for a cardiologist, you could ask your brother-in-law. But if you're looking for a psychiatrist or a therapist, you, you might not want to ask your brother-in-law. Um, because of that stigma associated of the stigma. with right, it. Right, right, right. But even if, even if that wasn't an issue, what people often don't realize is that just like medicine has specialties and subspecialties, and you wouldn't go to a kidney specialist if you needed an orthopedist. Uh, mental health has the same thing. Just people don't realize it. People say, what's the difference between one therapist and another therapist? What's the difference between one psychiatrist and another psychiatrist? And really nothing could be further from the truth. So even if stigma wasn't the issue and you were willing to speak to somebody, the chances that they would know what you need um, are, are very, very slim. Are those differences publicized? Meaning if you walk up to a door, you would not be able to necessarily see that this is a specific psychiatrist, right? right? I would say, you know, John Brown, psychiatrist, psychiatrist. You know, okay. or psychotherapist. Um, so that's number one. Number two, also knowing who's good um, is, a big, is a big issue. Not everybody, in fact, really the majority, um, are not really that good. Um, and nobody knows that because who's watching? So relief is watching. Um, what we do is we, we interview the clinicians and then when we make recommendations, we follow up. We follow up with the people that we've recommended and see how they're doing. And at this point, Relief has helped almost 125,000 individuals. Wow. And we're adding 1,000 new a month. 1,000. So, so that's 1,000 new phone calls coming or an, contacts coming in. 1,000 individuals coming in a month into the system. So that's a lot of information. Um, you know, we're speaking, on the average month, we're speaking to at least 1,000 new people and at least 1,000 people from the past. Um, and everything gets put into a database where we keep the track of, of how the clinicians are doing. When you, know, when you do that a few thousand times, you get to see, you get to see data um, and you get to see patterns and you can see that this clinician is doing a very good job and this clinician is doing less good. Or this clinician has done good with this group but not so well with this group and trying to figure out when we figure out 
why it works for these people and right. why it didn't work for these people. That's how we can tweak the system. So you're getting a fo so how do you follow up with someone who calls in to know whether or not that psychiatrist was a good fit and they got the help they were looking for? So we'll often call them. There's a schedule of, of when we're going to call somebody. We'll call the way the system was built. It doesn't always work that way because of the volume that we're dealing with. We're dealing with such high volume. But the way the system was built is that somebody should get a follow-up call after about a month, three months, six months, and a year to see how they're doing, not just at the beginning, if they actually went and followed the advice, but see how they're doing over time. Um, and again, when you do that as, as often as we are doing it, you get a lot of information. So how does it work? So, so someone feel, finds out about relief, are you doing heavy advertising or it's mostly word of mouth? So we haven't advertised in many, many years because as I said, you know, over a thousand people a month, you know, if we had advertised, I'm afraid what, what it would be. Um, so a lot of it is word of mouth, but the, the truth is we get a lot of free advertising. You, I don't think you can pick up a magazine, you know, whether it's a Mishbacha or Ami or whatever it is, that there's some kind of article that mentions relief. So we got a lot of, a lot of right. free publicity. I mean, you're on the Kosher Money podcast. There you go. <laughs> listens by, listened to by at least dozens of people. Um, so what, what does that look like? Someone calls in, and who's picking up the phone? A psychiatrist or it's no. a... So yeah. we, are, we are not mental health professionals. It's by design. It, it would sound funny, but really a mental health professional kind of gets in the way of what we're supposed to do. We're not here to fix the problem. We're here to help identify the problem and figure out, without being in the way, who is the best person out there to do a proper evaluation come up with a treatment plan. So when somebody calls... They, you can, they can either schedule online uh, an intake or they get set up, you know, the secretary sets up an intake for them. Um, and we do a phone intake with one of the referral specialists. Mm -hmm. um, we spend probably the most time and effort on symptoms, understanding when the person is describing it. And, and often somebody will call up and say, my wife has whatever. And we'll ask them, you know, was your wife properly diagnosed? Or again, this is a self-diagnosis. Ah, so they'll the say, hey, my wife has OCD right. or something. So we'll ask, you know, is there a diagnosis of OCD or is this a self-diagnosis? Okay. And if it's a self-diagnosis, we'll say, you know, instead of giving her a diagnosis, why don't you just tell me what's going on? Tell me, tell me what, what are the symptoms? What are, are you seeing? Are there a lot of self-diagnoses running around? Yeah, a lot of people like to self-diagnose, again, based on, based on little information that they have. Right. Um, okay. So really understanding what's going on and then... Although, again, because we're not, we're not clinicians, we will not diagnose anybody, um, but we may diagnose them in our heads. Okay. Um, and then we'll say, you know, that you should therefore see, based on, based on the symptoms that you're describing, you should go see such and such a person. They are expert at, at this. At this. Um, and then we'll follow up with them to see how they're doing. Very often, we may send somebody to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says, okay, this, this is what you need to do. We also need therapy. And they'll call us back for the therapist. Um, or the other way around. We may send them to a therapist. The therapist says, well, this person really needs a psychiatrist. Um, and and then, a psychiatrist for the listening audience, that's someone who can go out medication. Right. Psychiatrist is an MD and can give medication, um, whereas a, a, either a psychologist or a social worker does therapy. So, um, the, so the person answering the phone can potentially, after hearing the symptoms, decipher which track to put that caller exactly, into. Exactly. Okay. Um, and again, it's, it, we've done this because we've done this so many times. We really get you know, a good sense of, of what's going on. And, and generally, we will always err on the side of caution. Um, if somebody is not functioning, um, because therapy takes time. Therapy doesn't, it's not instant. Sure. Um, so if somebody's really not functioning, generally we will send them to a psychiatrist if somebody is suicidal. Of course, we're going to send them to a psychiatrist if not to a hospital, depending on how severe the situation is. Um, but on the other hand, <coughs> if somebody is describing something that's more mild, um, maybe hasn't been going on that long, is not affecting their life in a terrible way, it's affecting them, obviously, at some point, otherwise they wouldn't be calling us, um, then therapy is often going to be the first round. Gotcha. So 
there could there could be let's say we were going to create a pie chart of why people call are there hundreds of different reasons from a from a broad perspective are there hundreds of different reasons is it mostly trauma is it different in nature um how would you categorize um the so, pie chart so unlike medicine where there are literally thousands of disorders in mental health, although there's a very thick book called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of, of all the disorders, in reality, for the most part, we're dealing with maybe two or three dozen disorders. Um, the most prevalent is going to be, of course, is probably no surprise, is anxiety. Anxiety is the number one. Um, depression is number two. Um, and then a million and one things from OCD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, eating disorders, trauma. Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anxiety and depression, is that immediately attract to a psychiatrist and medication? Or he, it, it can go either way? So it could go either way, again, depending on, on how severe. Um, it's interesting. In, in statistics that are out there, depression is number one and anxiety is number two. In our statistics, anxiety is number one and depression is number two. And the reason for that... And our means... Our in, relief. And relief, yeah, okay. Yeah. And the reason for that is probably... Because when somebody has depression, they could be stuck in their depression for a long time. They could really be in a rut, and unless somebody's pulling them out, a spouse, a parent, a very close friend, you know, they could really be stuck in that rut for a long time. Um, whereas anxiety, you know, they're jumping out of their skin. So they're more likely to call for help. Hmm. Okay, so therefore, that's why we're seeing more anxiety than we're seeing depression. Oh, interesting. Um, People that are depressed are, are right. lonely. They're not necessarily right. reaching out. Forgetting to get the help. Um, but again, depending on how severe you know the situation is, the the treatment, the number one treatment for anxiety is is therapy. Okay, and generally cognitive behavioral therapy, a certain type of therapy. Um, medicines can help, and medicines often are good to take that edge off and, and have the therapy work faster. Um, depression can go either way. Depression, you know, depending on the situation, can either medicine, therapy, or sometimes both. And really, for for both anxiety and depression, often both are, are going to be are going to be used, both medicine and and therapy. And relief's been at this for how long now? So relief has been around for about twenty years. Okay. And I've been with relief for nineteen years. Where would you say the the state of mental health is today versus where it was twenty years ago? So it's definitely changed. You know, in terms of awareness, there's no question. Um, people are talking about these type of issues in a way that when we started, nobody was talking about. Um, it was almost frowned upon. To yeah, it was. It was very much under the rug and and not talked about. But you know, it, and I and we're not taking credit for it. I think it's a lot of a lot of things are going on. There certainly are there other organizations that are talking about all these issues, and um, and so that you know people are coming out and getting help. And would you say that the older generation? Is it, is it because the younger generation is getting older and they don't have that stigma? Because if you talk to people in their 50s, 60s, 70s that grew up in a very binary state where it's either black or white, right? Mm-hmm. You're either crazy or you don't need a psychiatrist. Whereas the younger generation looks at it the same way you need an Advil for your knee that's in pain. You can take some sort of medication to help you deal with anxiousness. Um, is the older generation come around on that or are there still a clear divide there's a, there's a pretty clear divide. Um, statistically, only about 4 or 5% of what we deal with is above the age of 65. Now, part of that is because many of the disorders that we deal with really are, you know, develop in early life, you know, in, in teenage years or early 20s. Um, so that's 
just because of the nature of, of what we're dealing with. But certainly, you're 100 right that that with the older generation, it, it was it wasn't part of wasn't part of life. People didn't do that. Um, they didn't go to therapy. Whereas you know, in today's generation, I was I was speaking to somebody who was telling me that her daughter was uh, was going to trailers, you know, for, for you know being pulled out of class for trailers, special ed, and the daughter cried to the mother. She goes, "Why can't you go to therapy like all my friends?" Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So you know, today it's a different world. It's a different world. They're eager for it. Yeah. Um, is is are mental health issues more prevalent, and that's why it's it's more discussed? Or you know, w- was the previous generation just more content, and they didn't have as many issues? Or it really, indeed, fifty years ago was just swept under the rug. So it's a question that that comes up very very often, and, and and I don't pretend to know the answers to everything, but I think that it's not just one answer. I think there are a couple of things. A couple of things in play. Number one is math. Okay. Okay. Um, Baruch Hashem, the from community has grown tremendously. I, think I saw a statistic recently that in the last twenty-five years, the from community quadrupled. Right. Which, if you think about your own family, it makes sense right. to say that. Um, so then, something that was two percent of the population fifty years ago was a small number. Today, two percent of the population is a big number. So say something like bipolar disorder, which affects one or two percent of the population. You're dealing with a much bigger number than we were dealing with, you know, even when relief started. Um, so that's one piece of it, and it, and that's a significant piece. Um, the second thing is, like we said before, awareness. There's no question that, you know, people who were having troubles many many years ago, you know, uh, you know, if somebody was, you know, had some serious mental health issues, often it was blamed on the war, right? They they right. ran through the war, right? right? Um, today, people are really looking at their issues and and really getting the help that they need. Um, so that's the second reason. I think the third factor that we're seeing is that as much as we are a separate society, at the end of the day, there are things that are seeping into our society as well. Um, we're seeing addictions in numbers that we never saw before. Mm. Um, so that's certainly, I think, one of the biggest areas that we're seeing, unfortunately, a very, very you know, significant growth. So when you put all these things together, that's that's I think one of, you know some of the reasons why we're seeing such a, such numbers. So this being a money focused podcast, the reason we wanted you to come in today is just to sh- to share a little bit of light into how much does wealth or or finances play into anxieties, right? When you think about it's possible that it, it it's not all that much, but when it comes to relief, phone calls in, how much of the issues that people bring up are related to money? Um, their personal finance situations. So finances certainly plays. Finances and mental health are, are really very, very closely related. Um, in fact, one of the first, um, you know, first experiences that I had with mental health was before relief even existed. Um, was when I was looking. I was working uh, as the director of, of PCS of the Goodes Jobs Program, and there was a guy who came in for a job, and we got him a job, and then six weeks later. He was back because he got fired, and he needed another job. And then basically this was going on for every, every six weeks to two months. He was back looking for another job. And so one of the board members said, this guy doesn't need a job. He needs a therapist. Okay? And he says, I have a friend who's a therapist, and I'm going to tell him to say that he's a job coach. Okay? Because in those days nobody was going to therapy. Um, I'm going to say, tell him you're a job coach, and I'm going to send him to him, and I'm going to pay for it. And that's what he did. He went to this therapist, and he kept the next job for 20 years until the company closed down. So, you know, that was really my first, first you know, opportunity to see that, you know, mental health and, and you know, finances really go very, very closely together. Because right. if somebody is not stable, um, and even, you know, not in a way that's so obvious to everybody, but, you know, a good bit of anxiety could, you know, really get in the way of the work that you're doing. Um, 
so all these things definitely definitely play uh, a, a role in, in you know somebody's financial stability. So so wealthy people, right? You would think that they aren't struggling with mental health, but that's completely wrong, right? Correct. Correct. So the one thing about mental health is that it doesn't discriminate. Poor people are dealing with it. Middle class people are dealing with it. Wealthy people are dealing with it. Um, each one has their own, you know, struggles and and their own unique circumstances. I remember once hearing from Shmuel Birnbaum, Zechariah Levracha, that he said he felt particularly bad for a rich person who was depressed, because a poor person who was depressed could say, okay, maybe one day I'll be rich. Okay. <laughs> but a rich person, that's the answer, right? Right, right? right. But a rich person depressed, what's he what's he looking forward to? Um, so that's, you know, again, it really it really cuts across, you know, all all. You know, socioeconomic, you know, uh, status. Um, but I think what we sometimes think about, you know, that when we when we hear about rich people or famous people um, that are having this, that it maybe affects them even more than it affects you know other people. And it, probably the answer is no. It really probably doesn't. It's just that they're famous, so therefore it's going to stand out more. Mm. Um, you may not know that your neighbor is dealing with whatever he's dealing with. Um, so it really, it's interesting. It really does cut across cut across you know all all levels. But I would imagine that wealthy people are dealing with different anxieties and, and you know, different types of depression than someone who's poor, right? Right. Or so doesn't have the money. So again, it, it's it's interesting. There's um, we f- we find that there are two groups of people that um, have a difficult time in getting good treatment: the very poor and the very wealthy. Now, the very poor is obvious, right? Because they can't afford good care, so they may have to go to a clinic. They may have to get substandard care. Um, so you understand why they would get poor treatment. But the very wealthy, why would they get substandard treatment? And the answer is they're not used to waiting. And they're not used to – say somebody has a business, right? Uh. Okay. And he's a successful businessman. And in, in his company, when he says jump, people say how high, right? right. And he's used to that. Right. Um, and then comes something like mental health you know, into play. And it's taking longer than he would want it to take. Right? right. So this somebody in his family had, let's say, for example, a manic episode, and I have this all the time. Um, and you know, a week passes, two weeks passes, three weeks passes. Why, why, why aren't they better yet? So maybe I, you know, maybe I should the doctor that I'm dealing with. Maybe he's not good enough. Maybe I need a bigger doctor, a different doctor. And so the seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand dollar, you know, evaluation that would stop the regular person from jumping. Because they say, well, I don't have that kind of money, so let's see if this is going to work. Right. Um, they don't have that holding them back. Um, and what ends up happening is that they jump too quickly, and they don't really let things work, and then they just just becomes very, very confusing. Right. A, a rich a rich person can't tell his anxiety to jump. It's not going to say, right. how far away do you want me to go? Exactly. It's going exactly. to take some time. Right. Wow. Because you, you would think that the wealthy people with the access to it, they would be cured more more quickly. Right. But it's it's not necessarily the case. Right. Have you ever dealt with someone who came into a lot of money really quickly and it sort of like threw them off? Because I always say that if I was to win the lottery, you know, and we discussed this with Rav Naftali Horowitz, how we wouldn't know who our friends are and it would completely change the whole dynamic of our life. But there are tremendous amount of anxieties that come with an abundance of wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Will I retain the wealth, et cetera? Um, does that come into play? Absolutely, absolutely does. Um, we were once dealing with a very, very wealthy person, and we needed a certain favor from not from him, but from a friend of his. And I was speaking to somebody, you know, who I asked him to speak to this person. He said he'll never ask for a favor because he doesn't know if he has any friends. 
Wow. Okay. And that was, to me, it was a, such a sad thing. You know, this is a person who's really on top of the world. Um, but because of, because of his wealth, he doesn't know who his friends are. Wow. And now a word from our sponsor. You see all that thank you Hashem swag running around town in the U.S., overseas? That's because they got their swag from FAO Printing. Now, FAO Printing, good friend of the podcast, huge fan, run by Penny Fisher. If your business needs swag, you got to look up FAO Printing. They do caps, sweatshirts, all types of promo items for your business, and they not only do it at a great price, but they care. So if you get a cap, one of your caps, it's a little off, they'll take care of it. They want to make sure you have an excellent product. I, ha- I got sweatshirts for my business from them. I got caps. And it's not those junky caps that you see running around. They're quality, right? I think part of why Thank You Hashem Swag has gotten where it's gotten is because the quality and the products of the quality of those products is golden. So hit them up. Tell them the guys at Kosher Money sent you. Penny, P-I-N-N-Y, at FAOprinting.com. They ship cross-country. So you're in New York, California. You own nursing homes. You own a small mom-and-pop shop. Whatever it is, hit them up. Tell them Kosher Money sent you. Maybe they'll give you a Kosher Money discount. Penny at FAOprinting.com. You can also call them. Leave a message. They'll call you back. 718-282-3310. Tell them your boys at Kosher Money sent you, FAO Printing. Now back to the podcast. So so I, f- from the little I know about um, psychiatrists, or at least the good ones, they, they tend to stay away from insurance, right? Um, and, and I've heard the reason, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that if they were to go through insurance, there would be a delay in them getting paid via the insurance company or whatnot. You know, it's cash, it's, it's direct. Um, does that sort of hurt the less wealthy or the people that may not have the monies that they're going to possibly subpar psychiatrists? And what's the answer there? Right. So it's, it's a very, very big problem. And it's something we deal with every day. Um, you know, doctors don't take insurance because, you know, and it's really, it's everybody's fault. Okay. If somebody breaks their leg, you take an x-ray, you see the leg is broken, put on a cast. Six weeks later, you take another x-ray, leg is fixed. We're done. Right. Okay, it's very clear. Insurance company will pay for that, no problem. Okay, because mental health is such a gray area, the insurance companies know that if they say, "Okay, we're going to cover this person for two years of treatment," there's going to be a clinician out there who's going to say, "This guy needs two years of treatment." Okay, so it's a game that you know, the insurance companies don't really want to cover because they know that they're going to be taken for a ride, and because there are some clinicians out there who are less than honest. Um, what ends up happening is that they create all kinds of barriers, really. You know, a lot of paperwork, denials, you know, like you're saying, they don't get paid right away. Certainly they pay at a lower level than, than you know, the person can, can charge privately. Um, so what happens is that the good clinicians will say, I'm not taking insurance. Why do I need this? I have a full practice anyway. Right. Um, so, yeah, it definitely does hurt those people who, who need it. Now, we have a couple ways of, of dealing with that. Um, one way is, again, when... We're dealing with something that's more mild, hasn't been going on for so long. There are times where you could use the clinics, and we definitely make use of clinics where people you know, can use their insurance. Um, and in some clinics, depending on the clinics, some clinics where we have a relationship with the clinic, you know, the people who run the clinic, we say, listen, this person needs a higher level. Please make sure that they get you know, this therapist or that therapist. Um, so that's on one level. The second thing is insurance. So 
as we said, insurance, you know, the insurance, you, you, most people have coverage for mental health, but you can't find anybody that accepts your mental, your, your coverage. Uh-huh. Um, however, if you can prove to the insurance company that they don't have in-network what you need, they must pay out-of-network even if you don't have out-of-network benefits. How do you how do you prove that? So most people don't know this. Yeah. As a rule, they don't know it. But even if you did know it, this sounds yeah. like a kosher money uh, blast, Yaakov. I think when when this comes on on the camera, we should have something like boom. Yeah, go for right. it. Um, but again, even if you did know this, you know how do you know how to fight your insurance company? And you don't have the head to fight your insurance company if you're dealing with a mental health issue. So we have a company that we work with. We contract out with a company, um, a very very good bunch of Chassidish guys who are really good at this. And they fight your insurance company, and we pay for it. Um, and we as in relief. We as in relief, yeah. Um, because it's the best return on investment you ever you ever saw in your life. The average case costs us maybe $400, $500, and the average winnings for the client could be anywhere from 5000 to we even had 100000 Wow. Okay? Um, now, this doesn't work for everything. This doesn't work for your garden variety anxiety, because for that, the insurance company will say, go to the clinic. Right. But for certain things that are more difficult, eating disorders, personality disorders, where the insurance company knows that if they don't cover treatment, they're going to end up paying for hospitalization, which is going to be much, much more expensive. Uh-huh. So it's easy to fight them on, on those things. Sort Sometimes, of back them into right, a corner Right, there. right. Sometimes language, let's say, for example, you have a Yiddish-speaking kid, right? Mm-hmm. He, needs, he needs a clinician who speaks Yiddish. He's not going to be able to do it otherwise. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you could do that. There are different, you know, different things that you could do. Again, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't work for every case, but when it does work, it, it really works very, very well. And then... I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast that's going to be listened to by dozens of people. Um, but there is a fund that we administer of a few hundred thousand dollars. It's only a drop in the bucket. Um, and we don't tell people about it because if we did, we'd need millions of dollars. Um, but it, when all else fails, we do try to help people Beautiful. pay. Now, this also is fascinating um, how sometimes all we need to do is prime the pump. Okay, what do I mean? So let's say there was a person I was dealing with. He had bipolar disorder. And he was doing very poorly. And it was very obvious to us why he was doing poorly. He was doing poorly because he was seeing a very, very substandard clinician. So I said, listen, you know, you've been with the clinician for a while. It's not helping you. I would recommend you see Dr. So-and-so. Dr. So-and-so charges $700 for the first visit. She says, $700? I don't have $700. I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, what's the difference between the doctor I'm seeing and the doctor you're giving me? And I don't have $700. Mm-hmm. Right? So what we do sometimes in that situation, we say, listen, you know, we'll do $400. You do $300. Could you do that? 300 I could do, okay? And then they go to the doctor, and then they come back and they say, now that's a doctor. Now mm-hmm. I get it. Now I hop what you're this talking about. Is the second visit $1,400? No, so the second, <laughs> no, the second visit is usually, no, the, the, the follow-up visits are more manageable. They're, you know, again, depending on the doctor, it could be 250 275 300 Right. But again, those are, those are and, and depending on how often the psychiatrist, you don't necessarily have to see that often, right? right. You can spread out the, sure. the visit sometimes, again, if it's not so severe. Um, so sometimes just a few hundred dollars could get them on the right track. So, you know, we stretch out this money, you know, as, as, as much as we can. That's awesome. So with, with COVID, and obviously in the rearview mirror, did careers and jobs that were, um, people, people lost them, um, people had jobs for dozens of years, they lost them. Did calls coming into relief relate to that, right? What, what was relief like during COVID? Did calls increase, and how much of that was related to finances? So it's interesting. Um, we know our pattern is that when the crisis is going on, we're going to get less calls. There are some wonderful organizations out there that deal with crisis, and they get the crisis calls, right? We get the calls three months later. And, and to clarify, a crisis call means someone needs help right there, 
Yeah, so let's, hold let's, hand. let's take yeah. let's take for example what happened in Meron. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you know the the initial although we were involved at, on on some level, but the initial crisis, the initial um, dealing with the, the tragedy and the and the trauma on site, you know, um, that was handled very very nicely by wonderful organizations. We're going to get these calls. We're going to get the people after three months who haven't gotten over it, who are still having the nightmares, who are still right. Um, so the same thing was with, with you know during Corona, during during the you know when everybody was hunkered down, it was actually very quiet, and we knew we knew that we were going to get inundated afterwards, and boy did we. Um, mm. We're over thirty percent above what we were before. Yeah. People that had direct impact as a result, or just people that were exposed to seeing video or hearing about so, it. So, really, it's across the board. Um, you know, certainly we had a lot of a lot of grief and bereavement mm-hmm. issues that, that we had to deal with. Some very complicated ones. You know, Kahlo got married, and you know, one of these backyard you know, weddings, and her father got Corona and died two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these type of terrible stories. Um, but uh, but also a lot of anxiety, a lot of health anxiety. Um, people who survived, but were really shaken up big time. Um, you know, financial, more at the beginning. That we were seeing more at the beginning when people were really worried about what's going to be. Um, but at some point, things kind of settled out, and so that kind of dissipated. Um, so I think probably at the beginning, we saw more of the financial concerns. And speaking about financial concerns as it pertains to a family, um, do you get calls about a husband and a wife that may not be necessarily getting along when it relates to finances, uh, to kids, or even relief aside, I'm sure there are many couples that argue over finances, and what do you recommend to them to uh, sort of bridge the gap? Good therapy. Good therapy. <laughs> um, but no, listen, we certainly get a lot of a lot of couples that, that finances are an issue. I would say, actually, you know, just giving it a little bit of thought, probably one of the most common um, financial related shalom bias issues that we see are when there's a control issue over the finances mm-hmm. where one usually the husband um, is very very controlling over the finances and that's that's creating a lot of problems I would say that that in general most of the shalom bias issues we see are for a variety of reasons including you know mental health issues um, but if we're, we're going to look at the financial ones I think that's probably the, the biggest area that we see yeah we shared a stat here um, related to mental health and money, and it says that half of people, 46% of people in debt also have a mental health problem. Whereas you would think, oh, okay, give them some tzedakah and they'll, they'll get better, but it's really stemming from a bigger issue, right? Right, right. So again, if we're talking about, you know, and, and again, at Relief, we are talking about regular, everyday people. You know, obviously somebody with severe, persistent, chronic mental health is going to have serious you know financial problems because they're not able to to have a job but that's a very small percentage that's probably less than two percent maybe even one percent of what we're dealing with what we're dealing with the other 99 percent are guys like me and you okay regular people who are going through regular life but have whatever is going on so you know and and again like i mentioned before your your stability being able to keep a job you know do well at the job um, is going to be affected by your mental health, right? So as an example, I had a situation a number of years back where a guy, a father of 10 kids who's a Rebbe, very, very popular Rebbe, very successful Rebbe, um, went into a very, very deep depression, very serious deep depression. Um, and, you know, he's in bed. And he had a daughter in seminary, he had kids in Shaduchim, tuition to pay. He wasn't working. 
right? It's a disaster. Um, Baruch Hashem, um, we were able to get him to a very, very good doctor and ended up getting something called ECT, if you're familiar with that. It's a electric, no, an electroconvulsive therapy, shock okay. therapy, um, which is only used in the m- most severe situations, but his was, was pretty severe. Um, and he did great. He did great, and he got back to work, got his job back, and the family was saved here. It's not, you know, you know, when you look at, you know, of course we helped this individual, but the kids that got married, Baruch Hashem, because there was somebody to be able to, to pay for the wedding, right? Um, so the, when you're dealing with mental health, you know, the, the ripple effect of, of good mental health goes, you know, it goes very, very far. Again, it, it deals, you're not, you're not just dealing with the individual, you're dealing with the family, and you're not just dealing with the family, you're dealing with generations. Right, right. You know? So you fix one, you fix, yeah. you fix many. Right. I, I've spoken to people where they say, yes, I am anxious, um, whether it's about my finances, whether it's about my children. Um, and you can tell that it's not, it's not realistic anxiousness, right? I'm sure there's a certain level of healthy anxiety. You don't, you don't want to eliminate that and have someone be laissez-faire. But what do you tell those people that, hey, I don't want to have to rely on going to someone to ensure that I'm okay, or I don't want to have to rely on a medication, even though it probably could help me, because then I'm I'm reliant on something else. I wanna I wanna man up and I wanna you know just just uh, sort of swallow it and and move on. So the answer is if you can, great, but most people can't. Most people can't do it themselves um, for a variety of reasons. But it, it's it's really hard to do yourself. Um, and we tell people that, that if you have anxiety, whether it's financial or any type of anxiety, um, and, it's, and it's stopping you from really f- being part of life in, in its fullest form, it's a shame. It's, it's baltashkas not to take care of it because anxiety is very treatable. And if you get the right help, you know, there's no reason to suffer. There's no reason to suffer. So again, if somebody's thinking all day long about you know, whether they're going to have enough money to marry off their kids or they're going to have enough money to retire or whatever their anxiety is based on, you know, it, it just eats up your life, and it's a shame to do that. So for those listening that are somewhat on the fence and you're sort of opening their eyes now, how, how long is the treatment plan, right? If someone does have low levels of anxiety, but they know that they should either speak to someone, a therapist, psychiatrist, are they in it for four and a half years or no? They, they'd be surprised at just how quickly they can get into a, a chair like everyone thinks you're laying on a couch yes, that's yeah. not true right, right they've only done on, it only on the west side <laughs> only on the west side uh, fancy uh, leather couches yeah. but um is it realistic to say okay they're going to call relief within a week or two what's the timeline here walk us through so that. so unfortunately right now because of the volume that we're dealing with um it does take a little bit of time to get through the relief and i always tell people that you know we're Believe me, we're trying to get back to everybody as quickly as possible, but we do give everybody the time that they need, and that's why it does take us time. But once, once you, you know, once we get to you, we'll give you, you know, as much time as you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question is, you know, what what type of what type of help they need going forward? Whether they need a psychiatrist, psychologist. But let's say let's take a simple case of anxiety, and let's say it's really simple, right? It hasn't been going on for that long. It's not like it's going on for ten years. Um, and, and the person is motivated to take care of the problem. We tell people generally three to six months of good therapy, it'll be good. Now, it's very, very hard to give this kind of number because there are so many different variables and there's so many different ranges of, of issues. And sometimes you start out with an anxiety problem and you end up with something entirely different. Um, but let's say again, if it's a simple anxiety, um, certainly, and, it, and you, a motivated person and a good therapist, you put you know, those, those ingredients together, you can put this to bed very, very quickly. And how much of this is hereditary? 
anxiety. Um, if I have anxiousness towards my career, wealth, other things, does that mean my kids are more prone to have it? So it's, it seems, according to conventional wisdom, it seems that anxiety is, um, is genetic, um, but there's not a family in Kalani Israel that doesn't have the genes for anxiety. So we're all in that book. We were born. We were, all, we're, we're, we're made for book. this. Yes, we're all okay. made for that. You know, some of the other things, you know, are, are different. You know, some of the more serious uh, disorders are, are less prevalent, but anxiety is, is uh, who doesn't have anxiety? Right, right. I mean, so they, so they say, Marba Nechasa Marba Daigam, right? The more, the more you have, um, the more worries you have. Um, do you see a real correlation when it, when it comes to that? So, you know, again, you definitely see that somebody who is, you know, wealthier has more to worry about, right? Um, they have, you know, they have their, their financial issues, they have their social status, you know, there, there are definitely going to be more things for them to worry about. So that's why I think where the Marva Nechasa Marva comes from, because if you don't have anything, okay, what do I have to lose? Right. right. Um, but when you do have what to lose, uh, it keeps you up at night. That's right. So what, what if, if, you, if someone didn't feel the need or did go to a therapist and they've brought the levels of stress and anxiety down, but not completely, but they want some manageable tips along the way, and, and I don't believe you're a psychiatrist by any means, so this is not advice from a doctor, but over the years I'm sure you've seen certain things. How do you help people um, cope with um, the stresses and anxieties related to their, to their job, right? Everyone has to wake up. It's it's hard, right? I always say growing up, we never realized, you know, you always hear, oh, you're in camp, you're in yeshiva. These are the best years of your life. You're looking at them. What? You're crazy. I can't wait till I have a job and no teacher looking down my back. But there are stresses and anxieties that come along with it. And the finances of a personal Jew tends to differ than those in middle America. There's there's a lot of stress. Um, there's a lot of beautiful goodness to, to this life. And we love it. But how do you help people... Uh, manage manage that so the truth is i don't because i'm not a professional and i don't give i don't give that type of advice um you know this this is just advice from just a regular guy it could be your neighbor um but i you know my personal view on money which doesn't work for everybody um is you know i really try very hard to believe that whatever i have i have and if i need it i'm gonna have it and if i don't have it i don't need it um but again I was never tested with the um, with the Nisayan of wealth. You know, uh, I saw once a very beautiful thing. It says in, in Pirkei Avos. So it says, "Vyesi Ben Kisma, right, was was traveling, and somebody offered him to move to their town, and he said, "I, I want to live in a place of Torah. No matter how much money you pay me, I'm not coming." And the Mishnah goes on to say, as, as it says in Tehillim, that was written by David Melech Yisrael, "Tayvli Torah Spicha, Malfei Zav Kesef. Torah is more important than the money." So I once saw a very beautiful, it says, why does it say that it was written in Tehillim that was written by David, Hamel, David Melch Yisrael? Everybody knows who Tehillim was written by. Maybe Tehillim David Melch Yisrael. And written by David, David Melch. What's this long title, David Melch Yisrael? So somebody who says money is not important, right? If he has no money, big deal. Who are you to say money is important? You don't know what you're talking about, right? If you're David Melch Yisrael and you say money is not important, that, that means something. So that's what I'm saying. I, say, I, was, never, I was never tested with the Messiah of, of wealth. You know, Baruch Hashem, not of poverty either, but, you know, somewhere in the middle. So I can't really talk, you know, too big about this, and therefore I don't really give advice, but that's my own personal right. you know, view. No, that, that certainly has been a common theme. We have spoke with Naftali Horowitz, we spoke with uh, Zevi Wolman or Moshe Hauer, where 
you know, if anyone has come to this podcast thinking that money is going to solve all of their issues, they're, they're not aware that that's not true, and money will bring a host of other issues I, along I, the way. I often say that the problems, at least in the relief, the problems that too little money create are very easy to fix. The problems that too much money creates uh-huh. are very hard to fix. Very wow. Hard. Do, do you see, the, is the, are there gambling issues that people have and how, you know, they come to relief and they say, hey, I need help? Sure, really sure. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the things out there. Unfortunately, we've seen people that lost, I just had somebody I've dealt with lost millions in gambling. Um, and then there are people who lose millions in, in different type of gambling. You know, they, they take risks in business that they shouldn't be taking, um, which is also, you know, it's a different type of gambling. Um, and those stem from possibly mental health related a lot issues? of times a lot of times not always um, again you know it, one of the one of the signs and symptoms of a manic episode is grandiose thinking and, and spending like crazy um, and so there was a case I dealt with of, of a woman who bought a house in a day okay um, and you know she could kind of afford it but it was still a little bit you know that's a big purchase, right? Yeah, that's, that's like a big purchase. That's a big purchase to make an extra egg sandwich yeah, exactly, one day. Exactly, right. to make in one day, you know, without really thinking about it. Um, and you know, we've had again people who during a manic episode are, are, you know, they get lucky and they can make a lot, a lot of money because they're they're super, you know, they're they're, you know, juiced up. Um, but then in the end, they crash. And then a lot of times, I mean, I had a situation like that where somebody was making a tremendous amount of money during the, during the manic episode, mm-hmm. and then in the end, everything got lost. Wow. You know, and that's almost worse than not having it to begin with. When you look at today's generation and the amount of wealth, right, there are families that are, are, are very wealthy, or even the average family, they're inflation included, there's more wealth than there was X amount of years ago. Is that a correlation with why there are more mental health issues today? So we're definitely seeing, like I said before, much more, much, many more issues. And, and one of the things that people would think is that since today we are so much better off than our parents and grandparents were in the shtetl, right, um, we should be living it up. But yet you find that the numbers of, of cases of anxiety are going through the roof. So how does that make sense? So I once heard this um, from Chaim Epstein, Zohar Lebracha. He said he once came down to the breakfast table and he saw one of his grandchildren sitting at the table and they had five boxes of cereal in front of them and they were like deep in thought. And he said, what's the matter? He said, I don't know which one to choose. So he says, that's the problem because when I was a kid, it was either Rice Krispies or cornflakes. That was it, okay? Um, Sounds like my mother, by the way. <laughs> right. Too much to choose. Too much. But, but that's what it is. The, the, the amount of choices that we have for everything actually creates a lot of anxiety. So I once saw a study that was done that um, the three most anxiety-provoking things in life are death of a spouse, divorce, and building a house. Now, the first two are very easy to understand. Sure. But why building a house? Because you have so many options. Should we do porcelain tile, ceramic tile, carpet, wood floors, this, this type of doorknob, that type of doorknob? You can go crazy from the, from the decisions, and that creates a lot of anxiety. I've seen the before and afters of people before they built the house and, and afters there much more gray they, they they need to go on vacation after they the house, they built a beautiful house right You're, now go go live in it no 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 i need to get away i need to get away right, right. um Absolutely. so there are certainly um digus that come along with that um what would what would you recommend parents instill in their children to um a better cope with anxieties and b how do you identify that hey i have a kid that needs some sort of help versus it's just a kid being a kid. Right. 
so again, this is an area in terms of how how I you know recommend people you know take care of their, their kids' anxiety. It's again, something I don't do. Um, but let's say with my own children, um, teaching coping skills is very very important. Um, I think probably one of the biggest problems that many people will say they see in today's generation, the younger generation especially, is that they did not get good coping skills from us parents. Um, and parents are afraid to say no to their kids. And they're afraid to, and they don't like hearing no for themselves. So that is a big issue. You know, teaching coping skills to kids is, is really, really important. And that is probably the best thing you could do for them that's going to last them throughout their life. So saying no is, is healthy. Yeah. So saying no is definitely healthy. Now, again, you know, every situation is different, and I'm not giving chinuch advice, that's for sure. Um, but teaching coping skills and teaching children how to deal with things not going their way is uh, a very, very important tool for life. So what would be your, you know, if you were to part with, there, there's someone listening, and they were, uh, they decided that they are thinking about calling relief. Um, it's all confidential, right? Absolutely. No, no one will know or whatnot. No, it can be completely anonymous. And um, your advice to them? So my advice to people is that there's really help out there, and there's very good help out there. Um, and it, it, like I said before, it's a shame not to get the help because you know you're just going through life suffering and creating issues. Not you know these, these like I said, just like the help is is not just for the individuals, for the family, it's for generations. The problem very often spreads to the family and mm. to the generations. So it, it's really you know it's a very very important to get the help and and know that there is very very good help out there. And how do they reach you? What's the best way? The best way is... Um, Your either, personal cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, right? Either the main number, which is uh, 718-431-9501. Um, but, the, but probably the best thing, it depends, because we have, actually, we have offices around the country and around the world. Okay. So I assume that this podcast will be listened to for people yes, far away. Yes, by dozens right? across, uh, across the world the fruit, as well. Across yeah. the food plane. Um, so the best thing is to go to the website, which is reliefhelp.org, R-E-L-I-E-F-H-A-L-P.org. Great. We'll put it in the show notes. Rabbi Babad, thank you so much for coming down. Thank you so much for having me. We'll see you next time. And there you have it. Another fantastic episode in the books. When it comes to mental health and you want to help my mental health, leave a review. A five-star review really helps us. So if you have an iPhone, open up the podcast app, search Kosher Money, hit the five stars, write a review. Um, If you have any feedback for us, bring it on. Info at livingsmarterjewish.org in terms of guests, people you want to see. If you did not get that budgeting Excel worksheet, highly recommend you do it. It will really help you quantify exactly where your money's going on a monthly basis. It's a great first step. So email Zevi at info at livingsmarterjewish.org. Again, info at livingsmarterjewish.org. Ask for the budgeting worksheet. This episode was sponsored by FAOprinting.com. Again, if you want fly swag for your business, check them out. Email them, Pinny, P-I-N-N-Y, at FAOprinting.com. They do everything, right? I mean, I've gotten caps, sweatshirts, um, promo items, out-of-the-box promo items, great prices, great turnaround, um, super responsive, really like that. Um, you can call them 718-282-3310 if they don't pick up because you're listening to this at 2 a.m. God bless you. Leave a message. They'll get back to you pretty quickly. Uh, tell Penny I say hello, as my brother Yaakov, Yaakov you send regards to? Yeah. Yeah. Both of us actually send regards to Penny. 
And uh, yeah, Yaakov is also spearheading Living L'Chaim. So check them out on YouTube. Subscribe there. Leave us a review. Until next time, keep your money kosher. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Ellie Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living L'Chaim. To check out other podcasts from Living L'Chaim, go to livinglechaim.com. Check out our YouTube channel. Check up Living L'Chaim on podcasts and do your thing. Until next time, enjoy life. Living L'Chaim.